I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. A man who is about to die is not likely to be very elegant in his last words. Being in a hurry to sum up his whole life, He tends to make them rigorously concise. But it was different with Ballister, as he lay dying in the forecastle of the trawler North Caper from Grimsby. We had tried in vain to stop the flow of blood that was draining his life away. He had no fever. His speech was steady and rapid. He did not seem to see the bandages or the bloody basin. His eyes were following remote and formidable images. That was the opening paragraph of Jean Ray's The Mainz Psalter, which was originally published in French in 1930. The translation is by Lowell Blair, and the music for this episode was made by Penitent Whisper. The story tells the grisly tale of the Mainz Psalter, a ship en route to Greenland under the ownership of the shadowy figure of the schoolmaster with a purpose that remains a mystery to its crew. As the ship sails deeper into northern waters, reality begins to bend in peculiar directions, and the crew's number begins to dwindle. Those who remain begin to doubt whether this is indeed the reality they had known. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this psychedelic story by a writer sometimes known as the Flemish Poe or the Flemish Lovecraft. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to this special Halloween episode of Sherd's Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Sam. Feeling especially spooky this evening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very cold night here in London, so it's a chill in the air before this episode. Seems like something has cursed us <laughs> in this process, doesn't it, Rob? Yeah. Uh, I suppose we should be open about the fact we've had some setbacks this this time round. Yeah, spectral technical difficulties. Yeah, yeah, definitely a few ghosts in the machine and a rejected text as well. Ah, uh, yes, of course, yeah. But we've we've made it. We've made it through. Here we are. So today we're talking about the Mainz Psalter by Jean Ray, which was originally published in 1930. How do you feel about reading this one, Rob? You enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I actually, I really enjoyed it. I didn't really know. I didn't know at all. In fact, when we when we chose it, it was kind of. I think we chose it not quite at random, but from a larger collection. And um, but I enjoyed it a lot. It's just quite good fun, I think. What What did you think? Yeah, yeah, tremendous fun. I think. I think it's pretty gripping in its pulpiness, but it also has kind of cosmic grandeur that elevates it somewhat. And I really like that it seems to be interested in lots of things. The text seems absorbent somehow. It's quite curious about what it, what's going on in the world at the time in terms of scientific exploration, contemporary physics. And I think I'm right in saying that Arctic exploration is going through a sort of boom in the early 20th century. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I definitely think there's been written at a point in time when um, most of the world has has been explored or is, is kind of known in some way or other and so inspiration is pushing pushing to the limits at a certain point and I think we definitely see that in the kind of idea of the underwater as well as as one area of the, the earth that's yet to be explored and may may still hold some terrible secrets so yeah definitely yeah at this, at this point we have to go further and further to find a sense of mystery and so these Arctic and Antarctic expeditions as in the case of perhaps Lovecraft's at the Mountain of Madness become great sort of grist for the weird mill as it were. (laughs) I also really love that it seems to be an agglomeration of all of its literary influences and just quite openly has been influenced by quite a number of texts well I mean I've I felt that anyway and maybe we can talk Mm, a bit more about that later 
But, you know, if someone were to ask me, is it a great work of literature? I'd probably say no, <laughs> but, yeah. but it is a terrific, weird yarn told in this fireside manner. Perfect one for Halloween, I think. Did you find it scary, Rob? In places, in a way, yeah, I think. I don't know, there's a kind of flippancy, I think. Yeah, almost a... Uh, hyperactivity in the style itself where um, it sort of picks up narrative elements and drops them just as quickly when it's time to move on to the next thing and that can somehow sometimes kind of be a bit off-putting but at certain points when the story's meant to be scary elements just go completely unexplained I think it, it can be quite disconcerting yeah there's a few points in the book that I would highlight so yeah in a way I mean not you know I certainly wasn't hiding behind the sofa uh, <laughs> but yeah I think I think a little bit scary what what did you think yeah i mean the way you describe that makes me think of it almost as a sort of turbocharged mr james kind of thing Mm. whereas james's stories tend to be quite elegantly constructed around one particular horrific scare which are often not explained in great detail in genre's story the Mainz Psalter, you get one every few pages yeah and they build up into a greater mystery somehow Mm. But that in itself is quite effective. I don't know if I found it scary exactly. I think of it more as a mixture between an, an adventure story and science fiction, maybe with, with horror and weird weird elements. But it's certainly quite varied and, and wide-ranging in, in what it does. It becomes quite, quite effective when you put it all together, I think. I understand you can tell us something about Jean Ray's life. Actually, I have one thing to say about his mm. his life. So there's a connection to another of our episodes. I don't know if you came across this oh, as well, okay. Rob. Probably one of the most sort of obscure writers we've looked at before uh, is another Flemish writer, writer uh. from Belgium, Carol van der Woesteiner. And I read in a, in a Flemish journal called Memo from Belgium that Carol van der Woesteiner was one of the first to recognize Jean Ray's talents, which is quite curious because they're very, very different writers. Yeah, that's really, yeah, I would never would have thought stylistically very, very different. I suppose we should say Carol van der Woesteiner, if our listeners haven't heard that episode, is a very much a literary and symbolist writer working quite an elevated idiom perhaps compared to Jean Ray but it's curious that they would have recognized each other as as contemporaries you know Mm. yeah but anyway sorry I'm getting ahead of myself so yeah can you tell us something about his life so he's born in Ghent in Belgium and first thing to note is that Jean Ray is just actually one of many pen names he has and that within the weird canon uh, perhaps stands out for having a given name which is far more that of a of a kind of weird writer or even one of the characters from a piece of weird fiction mm. his real name is uh, Raymundus Johannes de Kramer which is sort of <laughs> Imagine it's the uh, the aging duke of a of a haunted castle or something yeah. like that. I don't know. But I've also read that apparently, it's, um, although it sounds incredibly baroque to us, it's not that unusual to have that type of name in Belgium. Do you know any Raymunduses, Rob, from personal experience? No, it's a really good name though. Maybe you save it for your son. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, firstborn Raymundus. <laughs> <laughs> His father is a port official, and I guess possibly interesting that the, the sea obviously plays a very large part in this tale, and also is sort of the setting for another one of his works that I've read. Yes, yeah, worth worth saying, I think that this this particular one that we're looking at, we're both reading it from a larger compilation, an anthology of weird fiction called The Weird by uh, Jeff and Anne Vandermeer, which is like really, really amazing. You, you put me onto this, Sam, but I think we kind of both agreed there's some really fantastic stuff in there. Well, it's, it's quite well received for sure, and it's, it's quite a famous anthology by now, but it really expands the palette of, of what could be said to come, come under the weird. And I think we're even in a stage of a real backlash against the, the idea of the weird. Mm. But this is so Catholic in its approach that... I think it could be of interest to many people who wouldn't consider themselves to be fans of weird fiction. You know, it's chronologically really wide-ranging. It starts in the late 19th century, I suppose, I think, and comes all the way to contemporary writers. So it's, Mm. it's... really special i think and really really broad geographically as well i think it's from from all over so yeah really 
I would definitely say that I'm a weird skeptic. I'm not really sure if I'm a weird <laughs> skeptic, but um, <laughs> I'm. Uh, I, you know, I've, uh, it's it's not something I go to straight away. And I've I've read I've read loads. This was the first thing I read from this particular collection, and I've been kind of reading my way through it and enjoyed pretty much everything I've read. Mm. So yeah, really highly recommended. Maybe I'm a weird a weird agnostic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can stay with you there as a as a weird yeah. agnostic. That's, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was uh, Ray. Ray was um, successful at school, but didn't he complete his university studies? And so, in the early nineteen hundreds, he works in various clerical jobs. But by the nineteen twenties, he'd joined the editorial team of various literary journals. One of which, important to note, is uh, L'Ami du Livre. And uh, yeah, become apparent why that's important in a short while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, he also publishes his first book. Le Conte du Whisky, which I think is Whiskey Tales in, in English, which has been republished very recently, I think, by Wakefield Press. There's a, mm. a nice review in the LA Review of Books that I was reading as part of, you know, when I was pulling together some stuff for this mm, great. biography, which is worth reading for anyone interested a bit more in that. So that's published in 1925. In 1926, he is charged with embezzlement, and this was to do with, apparently, his ruinous management of the literary magazine. Cuisine, which was uh, L'Ami du Livre. So Jean Ray was held responsible for that and he's given six years in prison, which is, is quite, a, quite a lengthy prison term. Pretty hefty. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's not a huge amount of detail about what exactly that embezzlement consisted of, whether I assume he must have been taking funders' money. But an interesting fact to add to this is that somewhere along the way, added to this, has also been accusations and charge of defecation and the smuggling of alcoholic beverages to the United States of America. Mm. Now, how exactly this is tied in with embezzlement from a literary magazine in, in Belgium, I don't really know. And in fact... Um, <laughs> There is um, there's a really, really good biography of Jean Ray, kind of an introduction to his work on weirdfictionreview.com mm. by Antonio Montiero. And that seems to suggest that this has in fact been, this, this particular fact has been added to his own biography by Ray. Now we know in the 30s and 40s he writes a lot of, kind of American-style detective fiction. So uh, You think he fancies himself as a bit of a, an Al Capone? Yeah, quite quite possibly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we'll we'll leave that as um, undecided whether whether that's true or not. But what we can say for sure is that whilst he was in prison, he writes two really fantastic short stories. One of which is the Mind Salter, which we're obviously looking at today, and the other one is the Shadowy Street, which is also in this same collection, The Weird. I read it straight after this, and it's really really fantastic as well. So both of these absolutely worth reading. After his release in 1929, he he writes very prolifically, and as I was saying before in 1933 to 1940 produces over 100 in a series 100 books in a series of, of detective stories which is called The Adventures of Harry Dixon The American Sherlock Holmes uh, and the story goes which is quite a funny one that he'd been hired to translate this series from the German but Ray thought the stories were so bad that he suggested to its publisher that he should actually rewrite them <laughs> and apparently the, uh, the publisher agreed with the proviso that each story was roughly the same length as the original that was their only stipulation apparently <laughs> i don't know fully whether he you know every hun all hundred of those books were, were rewriting or whether he kind of took the series on and started just writing them himself it's a bit like uh that michelle gondry film be kind rewind they make versions of blockbuster movies on on like home video cameras and sell them in a video <laughs> shop become even more popular than the real thing <laughs> yeah it's worth Definitely noting that in this same period in the 1930s, we've discussed already that there's a sort of similarity with various different writers, but he's published alongside Lovecraft and some others in the magazine Weird Tales, so in the, in the 1930s under the pseudonym John Flanders. He continues to kind of like write pulpy fiction, including comic book scenarios under the same same name, John Flanders, as well. Mm. But it looked, I think, like French, French language comics. Right. He he writes incredibly prolifically right through till his death in 1964. And there's a nice um, story a few weeks before his death. Wrote his own mock epitaph in a letter to his friend Albert von Hacheland, which was, Here lies Jean Ray, a man sinister, who is nothing, not even a minister. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is um is kind of straddles straddles the boundary between uh, 
weird and horror and just a bit funny which yeah, yeah, is very, yeah. very appropriate for, for the book we're looking at today as well so yeah have you seen it Jelloin or are my eyes playing tricks on me you're not mistaken he said softly but for the love of Christ don't say anything about it to the others their minds are already close enough to madness I had to make a great effort to go back to the rail Jelloin stood beside me the bottom of the sea was aflame with a vast bloody glow that spread beneath the schooner. The light slid under the keel and illuminated the sails and rigging from below. It was as though we were on a boat in the Drury Lane Theatre, lighted by an invisible row of flares. Phosphorescence, I ventured. Look, whispered Jelloin. The water had become as transparent as glass. At an enormous depth, we saw great dark masses with unreal shapes. There were manors with immense towers, gigantic domes, horribly straight streets lined with frenzied houses. We appeared to be flying over a furiously busy city at an incredible height. There seems to be some movement, I said. Yes. We could see a swarming crowd of amorphous beings engaged in some sort of feverish and infernal activity. Get back! Jelloin shouted, pulling me violently by the belt. One of those beings was rising toward us with an astounding speed. In less than a second its immense bulk had hidden the undersea city from us. It was as though a flood of ink had instantaneously spread around us. The keel received a tremendous blow. In the crimson light we saw three enormous tentacles, three times as high as the mainmast, hideously writhing in the air. A formidable face composed of black shadows and two eyes of liquid amber rose above the port side of the ship and gave us a terrifying look. This lasted less than two seconds. A heavy swell was headed for us broadside. Helm hard to starboard, shouted Jelloin. The lines holding the boom snapped and it cut through the air like an axe. The mainmast bent almost to the breaking point. Taut halyards broke with a sound like that of harp strings. The awesome vision became vague. The water was foaming. To starboard, the glow ran like a burning fringe across the high galloping crests, then abruptly vanished. Poor Walker. Poor Turnip, said Jelloin. The bell rang in the forecastle. The midnight watch was beginning. I thought it might be quite interesting to think about the lineage of the of the Mainz Psalter, this this story we're lo- we're looking at. And as I was saying earlier, it seems almost to place itself intentionally within a, a lineage of of literary works, and something beyond just the regular sort of nautical narrative explored by Conrad and Melville, among among others. This seems to fall for me much more into a kind of subgenre that that starts with the rhyme of the ancient mariner the samuel taylor coleridge poem i mean were you reminded of that poem rob when you were reading this yeah 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 yeah, definitely yeah something about the angst especially as the they get further and further into this terrible unknown mm. that yes yeah, is, is really reminiscent for sure yeah i think for for quite a few reasons it's it really reminded me of that poem the most glaring obviously is you know that it takes place on a boat that's <laughs> that, that, that sails into this unknown region of of water and and then encounters a sort of transformed and sometimes horrific sometimes psychedelic scenery i mean i thought particularly in terms of the way colors are are evoked Mm. when the mind salter the ship in in the story we're talking about finds itself in this nowhere or finds itself lost you get these uh, evocations of yeah the transforming colors of the seascape and then these masses that rise up beneath the water's surface and i was reminded of of these lines in coleridge's poem when he writes the very deep did rot O christ that this should ever be Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea about about 
in reel and rout the death fires danced at night the water like a witch's oils burnt green and blue and white and i think there is very similar imagery mm. in in the mind's psalter and this evocation of of an alien and and hostile landscape really sh- struck me as something that, that both texts really shared but i think there's more than there's more than just that there's also this framing narrative you know i realized it's a bit of a trope of just the the ghost story the the gothic tale and so on and you can find it in all manner of works from from the 18th century and through through the 19th century for instance robert i i have this great collection from the library of america edited by peter straub just called american fantastic tales it's just chronologically organized and it's a big section in the middle where every story begins with a frame narrative so it's definitely like a, Mm. a huge trend but there's something about the related of the story that is is crucial to it i think coleridge's poem begins with this wedding guest meeting the mariner and the idea is that the power of his tale holds the wedding guest in in thrall you know he writes he holds him with his glittering eye the wedding guest stood still and listens like a three years child the mariner hath his will there's a similar sort of narrative game played by jean ray i think in the mind's psalter where the tale needs so desperately to be told that it overpowers the pain suffered by the narrator so the story opens a man who is about to die is not likely to be very elegant in his last words being in a hurry to sum up his whole life he tends to be rigorously concise but it was different with baluster as he lay dying his speech was steady and rapid he did not seem to see the bandages or the bloody basin his eyes were following remote and formidable images i thought this could be a kind of apology for the style of mm. <laughs> of the execution of the story itself even before your description of ray as this hugely prolific writer i had a tendency to imagine him as this sort of literary workhorse yeah composing these stories just plowing them out but do you think there's something in seeing the transcendental power of the story that makes the seems to make the surroundings swim out of existence entirely enough to numb this terrible pain that the narrator seems to be undergoing yeah it's strange isn't it because i mean this is obviously jumping right to the end but Mm. the uh the narrator seems to be actually quite happy to have found himself back in the the world of his fellow sailors Mm. and, and away from this supernatural realm that he's found himself in before so it's also very vague about you know they're saying if if they could have possibly stopped his uh, bleeding he might have been okay mm. but it's never explained why exactly that is that they weren't able to to heal him mm. yeah perhaps this this kind of this need to unburden himself so that he can die in peace back in the world of the living or the back on this planet perhaps as, as is suggested may be the case mm. but i also really like when you were when you were suggesting that it might function as as an apology there is of course a few pages on like a, a real apology for the for the style when it talks yeah, about yeah, um, yeah. being being transcribed by Rains, the radio man, who it says, Rain spends all his spare time writing stories and essays for short-lived literary magazines. <laughs> so do, do not be surprised, therefore, by the rather special style <laughs> given to this final monologue of a mortally wounded sailor. The blame must fall on Rains, a literary man without glory, who transcribed it. <laughs> Which is, I don't know, I think something that I find really compelling and really enjoyable about this is that Ray really doesn't seem to take himself very seriously at all. No, it, yeah. It makes it all the more enjoyable, definitely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that that seems to be simultaneously a jab at, at himself and at the sort of commercial literary publishers, you know, publishers of these yeah. journals and maybe particularly the one that has been his ruin. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah quite, Yeah. <laughs> Because he is writing this, he's writing this story in prison. Is that is that true? Mm, yeah. yeah, 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 completely. Yeah, that makes it perhaps even more interesting as a work of escapism. Yeah, absolutely. There's an awful lot more of this kind of style of narrative to do with exploration that goes awry. Obviously, this only novel written by Edgar Allan Poe, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. And maybe it's worth saying that Jean Ray is sometimes referred to as the Flemish Poe. Mm. But I, I think Poe's tale is far more of a conventional 
adventure than Jean Ray's. Although there are darker elements to it, there's not quite the bombastic supernatural nature of this tale. But there is a far more straightforwardly supernatural mid-19th century story, the, the Moonstone Mass, which I was reminded very, very strongly. That, that's actually a beautifully written story by Harriet Prescott Spofford, um, which I came across in that Library of America anthology I was, I was talking about. Yeah. Similarly to the Mainz Psalter, it, it seems to take many of its cues from the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and even contains a ship under the name of the Albatross. Similarly, it takes the form of an obsessive leading a crew on an Arctic expedition and encountering this mysterious scarp of land in the Northwest Passage. But in, in a very similar way, you get these wonderful evocations of the shifting colours of the Arctic seascape, which is also also becomes quite psychedelic in a similar way to, to this story. So maybe he'd encountered this tale, or maybe perhaps it's just a case of this kind of thing being emer- an emergent trend in, in, in the genre in, in response to more and more more common Arctic and Antarctic and far-flung exploration in general. We haven't solved the question of whether Jean Ray read Lovecraft or not, have we? No, no. So we know now that he was published alongside him, Mm. which suggests, you know, if if Ray knows of this publication, that there's a very good chance he will have read the other people in it. And that, as we've suggested, he may have been something of a kind of anglophile. But I haven't found anything concrete to say that he did or didn't. But certainly it does feel like there's an influence there. It really does, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not the greatest fan of Lovecraft, really. And it's someone whom whom I haven't really explored in in enormous depth. I read a few major stories, but there are slight resemblances to Lovecraft's mythos in in the Mind Psalter, I think. Maybe particularly in terms of the suggestion of these greater beings. There's a... Mm. There's a moment in the Mind Psalter when the ship seems to be taken over by other entities that are never really described fully or even sort of delineated exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they appear to have superior knowledge in some sense. And then there's all these echoes of the tentacular, as we're going to use that (laughs) term. That's our new favourite term, the tentacular. You know, the recurring motif of the octopus, which obviously is is a sort of fascination of Lovecraft's that gets transformed into various kinds of gibbering entities in the dark. But it feels quite unlikely that the two things would emerge at precisely the same time without without responding to one another in some way yeah 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 definitely i mean as you say we can't we can't say anything for sure but there's certainly i felt the moment when the ship passes over this kind of like entire underwater city at the very depth of things Mm. that that quite reminded me of that perhaps it is this obsession with the idea of something kind of articulated and limb-like but yet completely alien perhaps this has come to both of them simultaneously but yet it does seem like a incredible coincidence but equally the um if we're going to jump to the to the end of the novel the the real way that this perhaps suggests a true society of of octopuses who who may be able to don a wax mask of a human to pass as uh, pass as human seems to seems to push it off in a in a slightly different direction yeah which is which i quite like yeah one that is slightly more uncanny somehow yeah sort of cosmic horror meets uncanny Mm. which is maybe not a combination you see quite so often together yeah you described it earlier as psychedelic and i think that's um yeah like a a really nice nice way of describing the the kind of very strange tangents that this takes and uh, the way that it follows through on this this final kind of vision that perhaps suggests that this thing that possibly could have been a dream or imagined is um is truly something psychedelically horrible a terrible trip but it definitely for me anyway kind of pushes it in a slightly different direction to anything i've ever read in what we would broadly term the weird if we consider maybe consider the way lovecraft describes the weird in reference to cosmic fear i think we can really see this in this story quite specifically shall i just read the how he describes it yeah definitely so this is from the famous essay supernatural horror in literature let me just read this section of it the true weird tale has something more than secret murder bloody bones or a sheeted form clanking chains according to the rule 
A certain atmosphere of breathless and unexplainable dread of outer unknown forces must be present, and there must be a hint expressed with a seriousness and portentousness becoming of its subject of that most terrible conception of the human brain, a malign and particular suspension or defeat of those fixed laws of nature which are our only safeguard against the assaults of chaos and the demons of unplumbed space. Um, <laughs> which is, is perhaps a slightly more slightly grander way of putting the ambitions mm. of this story i think yeah but they are quite specifically that i think especially in terms of in terms of the way that the ship the mind salter seems to exit the natural world entirely mm. seems to ex ex yeah. exist in a in an entirely alien space which may or may not be the same dimension and all of the laws of nature no longer apply right at nightfall jellowin motioned to me to come up on deck when i was beside him he pointed upward i think i fell to my knees a strange sky was arched above the roaring sea. The familiar constellations were no longer there. Unknown stars in new geometrical groupings were shining dimly in a frightening black sidereal abyss. Good God, I exclaimed, where are we? Heavy clouds were rolling across the sky. That's better, Jellowin said calmly. The others might have seen it and gone mad. You want to know where we are? How should I know? Let's turn back, Mr. Ballister, even though it's useless in my opinion. I took my head between my hands. The compass has been inert for two days, I murmured. I know, said Jellowin. Where are we? Where are we? Be calm, Mr. Ballister, he said rather ironically. You're the captain, don't forget that. I don't know where we are. I might make a hypothesis to use an erudite word that sometimes covers an imagination that's too daring. Even so, I replied, I'd rather hear stories of witches and demons than that demoralizing I don't know. We're probably on another plane of existence. You have some mathematical knowledge? It will help you to understand. Our three-dimensional world is probably lost to us, and I'll define this one as the world of the nth dimension, which is very vague. If by some inconceivable magic, or some monstrous science, we were transported to Mars or Jupiter, or even to Aldebaran, it wouldn't prevent us from seeing the same constellations we see from Earth. But the Sun, a similarity, a coincidence of the infinite, a kind of equivalent star, perhaps. Anyway, these are only suppositions, words. And since I believe we will be permitted to die in this strange world the same as in our own, I feel that we can remain calm. Die, I said. I'll defend myself. Against whom? He asked sarcastically. It's true that Friar Tuck talked about things worse than death. If there's anyone's opinion that shouldn't be ignored in this time of danger, it's his. I returned to what he called his hypothesis. What do you mean by the nth dimension? For the love of heaven, he said nervously, don't give my idea such real importance. There's no proof that existence is possible outside our three ordinary dimensions. Just as we've never discovered any two-dimensional beings from the world of surfaces, or one-dimensional beings from the linear world. We must be indiscernible to beings, if there are any, who live in worlds having more dimensions than ours. I'm in no mood to give you a lesson in hypergeometry, Mr. Ballister, but I'm sure of one thing. There are spaces different from ours. The space we're aware of in our dreams, for example, which presents the past, the present, and perhaps the future on a single plane. And then there's the world of atoms, and electrons, and relative immense spaces with mysterious kinds of life. He made a gesture of lassitude. What was that enigmatic schoolmaster's purpose in bringing us to this devilish region? 
How, and especially why, did he disappear? Another thing that made me think of this idea of lineage, were you reminded, I wonder, Rob, of this, the scientific discussion that precedes the main body of the story in, in The Time Machine, the H.G. Wells book? I haven't, I haven't actually read it. <laughs> I haven't read The Time Machine? No, I know. Awful. Oh, man. That is yeah. a, as a corker, Rob. Yeah, sorry. The, the time machine. <laughs> yeah, in the time machine, it begins in a sort of middle-class drawing room where educated men are sort of puffing on cigars and they discuss the fourth dimension, the possibility that you could move around uh, and travel just as easily in the fourth dimension of time as you could in, in the first mm. three dimensions, right? And there's a similar sort of exchange between the characters in in the Mount Salter yeah absolutely and discussion of the nth dimension i guess having not read the time machine that'd be my homework for for next week yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i yeah i think of two things in in relation to it maybe just, let me just read a bit of this exchange this is the character of Jelloin, who is acknowledged as the most highly educated member of the crew, approaches the captain, Ballister, and claims, we're probably on another plane of existence. You have some mathematical knowledge. It will help you understand. Our three-dimensional world is probably lost to us, and I'll define this one as the world of the nth dimension, which is very vague. If by some inconceivable magic or some monstrous science we were transported to Mars or Jupiter, or even to Aldebaran, it wouldn't prevent us from seeing the same constellations we see from Earth. Yeah, it was, in, it was interesting to me in terms of, well, the cosmic horror that we discussed a, a moment ago, I suppose, where suddenly the tools that we might ha have or consider to be at our disposal in order to determine something concrete about our existence mm. are no longer of any use, so they can't read the constellations and that is the primary <laughs> mode of navigation right yeah secondly this sort of speculative conversation about the dimensions in hg wells's time machine but further in terms of that book the time machine this idea of monstrous science mm. yeah the choice of adjectives is really is really interesting though isn't it where, where it's inconceivable like magic is inconceivable but it's science that's monstrous you know perhaps today those adjectives might be might be switched around. Um, science might not be conceivable, but it's the magic that's monstrous. But here, yeah, it's very telling. That in itself is one of the key concerns of the, the time machine. What the social consequences of our own technological progress will turn us mm. into as human beings. The question of whether we will remain human beings at all, if it continues to ex ex exercise its work on us when we think we are laboring on it right yeah i think there is something similar going on in this story in terms of technology mm. knowledge and and science maybe it would be an interesting point to bring in the idea of the mainz salter and what it is maybe it's not a coincidence that the real mainz salter is one of the earliest printed books and it, it represents a huge technological shift in the trans transmission of knowledge and it seems to be a concern in this story about what we're able to know by observation scientific observation and what we're able to discern through intuition yeah absolutely absolutely i think for me that was one of the key kind of themes that's going on here definitely yeah just to take an example of that this clairvoyant character who's known as friar tuck mm. who it says of the schoolmaster the leader of this expedition that man makes me think of an unscalable wall behind which something immense and terrible is taking place. So this intuited knowledge presents a warning before empirical knowledge of something tends to yeah. in the mode of sort of scientific exploration. Yeah, that, I mean, it's such, such a good quote, that one, isn't it? It's really, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really fantastic. There's certainly something, like when you were asking earlier if, um, if I found the book scary, I think there's elements of it the bits that i found scary were the the unexplained moments the moments where the laws of physics break down 
unexpectedly. Mm. So I'm thinking of the um, at the very, very beginning of their voyage when they're moored quite peacefully and happily in a bay and uh, some scavengers come across the boat. I think they might take it over and begin shooting at them. And then one by one, the scavengers are hurled from the cliff, seemingly by kind of these unseen forces. And it happens again and again that characters just suddenly disappear or um, are hurled violently into the air from, from mm. kind of like unseen forces. There's definitely something about the limits of scientific understanding perhaps going on and also what what happens i mean uh, yeah you, you said it perfectly about literally losing your bearings to, to no longer have the stars to navigate from but also the the world that you construct around you and the, the way you feel in control of it you know, through ascertaining its its rules and its ways of working and the horror that comes with not understanding that but i think there's certainly something in there about what is lost in the acceptance you know a, a, a society or a way of being that kind of like accepts that there's things beyond understanding or that there are mysteries that should be should should remain mysterious obviously the printing press plays a, a huge part in the big shift in protestantism from movement from uh, religious texts in latin to religious texts in languages that people were speaking in day to day and and reading and so it moved religious rites and mysteries away from something that only a, a few could understand and were kind of like shrouded in uh, mystery and also kind of in in horror right that there was uh, definitely an element of fear that went with all of this mm. into something that if we're being generous you know there's still i'm sure a lot of fear in catholicism sorry in in protestantism too yeah into something that that was far more understandable and could be you know almost quotidian i suppose and i think there's certainly a, a very clear questioning in this particular short story of what that does and and whether it's ideal uh, there were quite a few threads in it that seem to almost contradict each other I mm, think yeah for instance in the schoolmaster's desire for for knowledge or to lead mm. to lead this expedition if we could think of it as having a sort of MR Jamesian twist and think of something like the treasure of Abbot Thomas or the, the warning to the curious where mm. uh, the desire for knowledge is, is rewarded with haunting or horror or, or brutality mm. then I wonder if the sort of other pole of that desire for knowledge is faith, mm. then why we get at the very end of the story this idea of a kind of criticism of that mode of faith, right? So when Ballister finishes telling his story, uh, a reverend is, is summoned, layman's this reverend. Maybe... Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there an interesting pun there? Yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't spotted that either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it says, On the last day of creation, it is from the sea that God will cause the blasphemous beast to appear. Let us not try to anticipate destiny with impious inquiries. But, began Reigns, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge. And then it ends, before the holy word, we bowed our heads and gave up trying to understand. This doesn't seem to be an endorsement of faith exactly. Mm. Yeah, so if any, if anything, that, that seems like a kind of relinquishing of agency altogether. Mm. And I, I'm not sure that Jean Ray intends us to, to view that as a as a positive thing. But then there's also evidence in the ship's naming, you know, that the, the the ship is named after what essentially is a book of psalms, right? And it is in this ship named by the schoolmaster that they enter this kind of doomed territory. So I wondered if the story affects a criticism of religious authority or, or an endorsement of it. And I don't know that I've really come to terms with which, which it is, personally. No, and it's quite hard, I think, to know whether it's really in there, mm. whether Ray is kind of pulling at these various different tropes and uh, things and obviously that you know it hangs together very well as a story but it's hard it's hard to know if even he had intended that as a kind of like final moral mm. so yeah no I can comp I completely agree that you know, there's a lot of twists and turns that kind of make you question whether there's one particular message that's coming through you know the schoolmaster reappears in the final stabbing of the narrator in the guise of the guise of a clergyman coming from the water the whole thing doesn't quite make sense sense yeah i also noticed and I, again i don't know if this is um going too far but when they find ballister 
in the sea after his you know, after, after escaping from this um, nth dimension perhaps uh, he's found by Briggs who's uh, a cabin boy but he's he's just stolen an apple and I didn't know how uh, whether this is yeah. also a kind of, uh, kind <laughs> of like slightly jokily ham-fisted attempt at talking about uh, illicit knowledge things things that shouldn't be known yeah how much of it is highly ironic do you think yeah i mean there there do seem to be these little jokes thrown in yeah like that and like the name of the clergyman sorry the name of the reverend laymans mm. i don't know if that pun works in other languages if it works in dutch but it feels very explicit in yeah in english doesn't it yeah definitely and i wonder how much it's actually just ray kind of reveling in um in the kind of fun of of writing something that's able to be awash with these illusions and and not really having to do it too seriously but having having fun kind of like putting them in there and and creating all these potential dead ends or kind of possible points of inquiry for for readers We leaned over the pitiful remains, but we immediately straightened up again, shouting like madmen. The clothes were empty. Two artificial hands and a wax head were attached to them. My bullet had gone through the wig and broken the nose. You already know Ballister's story. He told it to us when he woke up toward the end of that infernal night. He spoke serenely, with a kind of happiness. We took devoted care of him. There were two holes in his left shoulder, as though he had been stabbed twice. But we would have saved him if we had been able to stop his bleeding, because no essential organs had been damaged. After having talked so much, he lapsed into a coma. When he came out of it later, he asked how he had been injured. Briggs was the only one with him at the time. Glad to have the chance to make himself interesting, he replied that in the middle of the night he had seen a dark shape rush into the forecastle and strike Ballister. He then told him about the shot and showed him the grotesque remains. At this sight, Ballister cried out in terror, The schoolmaster! The schoolmaster! He fell into a painful fever and did not regain consciousness until six days later in the maritime hospital in Galway where he kissed the image of Christ and died. The tragic mannequin was taken to the Reverend Layman's, a worthy ecclesiastic who has been all over the world and knows many of the secrets of savage lands and the sea. He examined it for a long time. What can have been inside it? asked Archie Raines. There was surely something in it. It was alive. Yes, it was alive all right. I can tell you that, grumbled Jokes rubbing his red, swollen neck. Reverend Layman's sniffed the thing like a dog, then cast it aside with disgust. I thought so, he said. We also sniffed it. It smells of formic acid, I said. And phosphorus, added Rains. Captain Corman reflected for a moment, then his lips quivered a little when he said, It smells like an octopus. Layman's stared at him. On the last day of creation, he said, it is from the sea that God will cause the blasphemous beast to appear. Let us not try to anticipate destiny with impious inquiries. But, began Rains, who is this that darketh counsel by words without knowledge? Before the holy word, we bowed our heads and gave up trying to understand. Did you have a favourite moment in the story, Rob? Oh, that's a very good question. Maybe I'm going to ask you straight back whilst I whilst I just try and think because um, <laughs> okay. I'm sure I'm sure I do, but I'm just going to have a proper think. But did you did you have a, a favourite moment? I think my favourite moment has to be when beneath the water they see what looks like a city. Mm. and these black 
dark tentacular shapes are occupying and floating above the city and rising up to the surface of the water seemed to me a very grand vision this minute suggestion of a much larger mythology which doesn't get explored fully but maybe is all the more powerful for it so i think that was my favorite moment no i think that would definitely be really high up for me as well i like the idea that this kind of weird you know looking down at the sea and that there's this idea that it could be a reflection just as easily as it could be or for this is what i was thinking of anyway that it could be a reflection just as easily as it could be something far down yeah. i also like how it's i think it describes the streets as something like horrifically straight which um for those um fans of um the history of town planning i think that's some <laughs> possible reference to the building of paris of modern paris as we understand it as oh, the kind right, of yeah. first modern the city and the yeah the kind of straight road so yeah the definitely a link there or a, or a reference to the the horrors of modernity <laughs> yeah 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 for sure for me then i think it would though be uh this the really fantastic bit at the end where they um they think they've caught the schoolmaster after shooting shooting his uh, f- this kind of fleeing body and when they pull him out of the water he's incredibly light and it turns out to be a wax mask and an empty empty bunch of clothes yeah the the leman layman uh, as we just said the fantastic bit where it says uh, uh hold it holding the mask he says he sniffed the thing like a dog and then cast it aside with disgust and he says it smells of formic acid and phosphorus captain corman reflected for a moment then his lips quivered a little when he said, it smells like an octopus. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so brilliant, the idea that this this character might have been the entire time this uh, this octopus creature yeah. disguised. Is a, you know, with a wax mask, that, the whole thing is just like, I was so over the top and ridiculous, but I really, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, I love that moment too. It's a completely absurd yeah. <laughs> twist, but uh, but I like that it isn't, he must have been an octopus. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But then it's, a, it's left as, as yeah. a perhaps less than subtle suggestion, but a suggestion nevertheless. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Last question, Rob. How many shirts would you give the Mites Salter? I think I'm like a six and a half. I don't know if we're doing half. Six, six to seven. I, I just really enjoyed it. I mean, like you said, you know, it's it's certainly not like a great work of literature, but this as a as a work of weird fiction was was really good. And just to really enjoy it, you know, it's very short and and a really enjoyable read. So I'd I'd highly recommend it. Definitely. What were your feelings about it? So. Yeah, I think I'd give it a similar score really six sheds seems appropriate i think if i ever go on a long boat trip this could be something i i take along with me yeah to harrow me through the cold nights i think it's just a bit of a treat isn't it for yeah. for halloween and uh yeah tremendous fun so go out and read it if you get a chance and meanwhile pick up the anthology the weird yeah 100 percent, full of great stuff Thank you for listening to this episode of Sherds Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Master Bill, it's